one of their products, which they were known for, after which this city is named, was for a little shrub-like bush called myrrh. And so it's called Smyrna. You know what myrrh is. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the Revelation, and for the next few weeks, we'll be in chapters 2 and 3, which look at seven churches that were located in Asia. Last week, Dr. Brogy looked at the church at Ephesus, which we saw had lost its zeal for the cause of Christ to such an extent that they are called out for having lost their first love, namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we continue in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 2, and we look at the church at Smyrna in a message entitled, The Rich Little Poor Church. Would you take God's Word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. If you were here last time, we turned a corner in this great study. I hope you bring a Bible, and if you have a paper edition, I promise you'll get 50% more out of any Bible uh, lesson I teach, and you will certainly begin to learn your way around the Bible if you have a paper copy. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, the International Bulletin of Missionary Research reported that 480 Christians are martyred every single day somewhere in the world. That means that before this sermon is over, 20 Christians will have been executed and on their way to heaven for choosing to live for Jesus. It's epidemic right now in the world. Jesus in John 15, 18 said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. By the world, of course, he's referring to the unbelievers to those who do not give Jesus praise and glory. And if the world hated him, an absolutely perfect individual who never did anything wrong, they will certainly hate us even with our imperfections. And so we are in Christ. We're out of the world. And so to be sure, we're here physically, but spiritually, we live on a different plane by the mercy and grace of God Almighty. We have, in the words to the writer to the Hebrews, become partakers of the divine nature. And so that gives us a new appetite for the things of God, for the things that God values, we begin to value. It doesn't mean that we're isolated from reality, nor does it mean that we're insulated from lost people. Unfortunately, some Christians are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good, but God has called us to engage the world with the good news as someone engaged you and shared with you how you could be forgiven. And to some people that we will engage, the Scripture says we'll be a sweet savor. To others, a rotten stink. Listen to what Paul said. Thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma from death to death. The other, an aroma from life to life. Now, behind the scenes, there is an evil one who is at work. His name is Satan, and he absolutely despises and hates Christians. I hope you realize you don't need to pray for the devil. Every once in a while, someone will ask me that. He hates you. He is your enemy, and he is headed not for any kind of redemption, but he is headed for eternal destruction. 
And Satan knows that one day God's people will occupy the throne room in heaven. We will co-reign with Jesus, we are promised. We will rise from the dead or rise off this planet through our new resurrection, resurrected immortal bodies, and we will rule and reign with Jesus. It's a marvelous promise. But Satan has been dethroned. He actually tried to take the very place of God as Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 records. And so at first he was cast down to earth. And there is coming a day when he'll be cast into the abyss. For a thousand years he'll be totally restricted. And then he'll be loosed for a short period of time as we will study towards the end of the revelation. And then he will be forever cast into the lake of fire with never-ending heartache. And so he hates the believer because we're moving upward, he's moving downward. And so when you come to a church like the one in Smyrna, their real enemy was not just unbelievers, but the devil himself who was working behind unbelievers. Paul says our, our struggle is not against people, flesh and blood, but those forces that are working behind those people, principalities and powers. And of course, as you read through the history of the church, Christians who are persecuted, it doesn't stamp out the church. It has a way of spreading the church. It doesn't paralyze the church. It actually purifies the church. Tertullian, the great church father, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the more Christians lose their lives, typically, the faster the gospel spreads. So we're in an exciting adventure as we study these seven churches together. And there's nothing like a good, healthy local church. The fellowship, the joy, the relationships, the Spirit of God present. There's nothing like it. There's all kinds of organizations in this world that Christians give themselves to. But there's nothing like a good, healthy local church. It's an awesome testimony and it has tremendous power to make a difference in the world. And so we come this morning to the second letter of the seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches. We want to begin by reading the letter that he wrote to these people. We're picking up now in verse 8 of chapter 2 where we left off last week. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death." Now, for the benefit of those joining us for the first time and the rest of us who I hope want to master this book, let me refresh you with the context. When you understand the big picture of any book of the Bible, the details take on meaning, and it becomes a tool in your hand, not only to help yourself, but to disciple other people. We discovered in chapter 1 that the theme of this book is Christ coming again in the clouds of glory. That's Revelation 1.7. But then we saw in Revelation 1.19 the outline of this book. Therefore, he's instructed by Jesus, John, write the things which you have seen, 
and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So according to Revelation 1.19, there are three sections to the book of Revelation, and it follows it absolutely perfect. Chapter 1 describes the past, chapters 2 and 3 the present, chapters 4 through 22 the future. A young brother in Christ asked a very perceptive question as we were leaving the church last week and I was on my way to the airport. He said, when John is told to write the things that are present, is he talking about our day right now? And I said, no, principally he's speaking about the day in which he is living in where these seven churches existed. But on the other hand, because of the admonition that God will give at the end of each letter, in one sense, he's speaking to us as well, because this is for all time for all churches. 20 centuries has gone by since John received these letters and recorded them in the Revelation, but they are still as applicable today as the day in which they were first penned. So when you come to chapter 4, Remember, the outline ends in 119 with after these things, metatata, and the first two words of 4.1 is metatata, after these things. So chapter 4, all the way through the end of the book, is futuristic. When we come to chapters 4 and 5, we will have an awesome peek into the throne room of God. And then when we come to chapter 6, God will begin to unleash and unfold the awful judgments that are going to come through the seal uh, trumpet in bold judgments. And so here's a picture of the book, the things past, the things present, the things future. Chapter one deals with the Christ. He records this marvelous vision that he has of the glorified, exalted Christ. Chapters two and three focus on the church and four through 22, the consummation. The church is nowhere mentioned in chapter four until the 19th chapter when Jesus comes back again. It's because they have been raptured. Or to say it differently, in chapter 1, we have Christ in His glory. In chapter 2, we have Christ in His church. And then in the rest of the book, we have Christ in His judgment. Now, verse 20 is part of the vision where Jesus interprets some of the things that He has said, but it sets the stage for the seven letters that will follow. Notice, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Jesus says to John, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw, again, he's referring back to that vision. He has said already in verse 16 here, in his right hand he held seven stars. But now he tells us in verse 20 that the seven stars refer to seven angels or what we might call seven pastors over the seven lampstands, which he further defines to be seven churches. Now remember, in the opening verse of the Revelation, it's a very important verse, we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus Christ. He gave it to him, not in the sense that he was informing the omniscient second member of the Trinity, but as we will see, he gave it to him who knows everything and that he is the one who is going to execute what we will read in this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants. I hope that's you. If you're born again, you're one of his bondservants. The things which must soon take place. We saw the word soon as the Greek word taxis. We get our word tachometer from it. It refers to something that quickly or suddenly happens, that once these events begin, they will spiral very, very fast. And he sent and communicated it. 
by his angel to his bondservant John. It was communicated. Now, if you have the NASB, you will remember out in the margin, you could render the word signified. It was signified. And I like that word in one sense, and that the first four letters of signified is sign. Signified, and it's the same word that is translated as sign, except this is a verb. The same word that's translated as sign in John's gospel, where he calls his miracles signs. That is, they are attesting miracles. There are miracles with a message behind them, and so he carefully selects the seven miracles that he uses. Well, he uses the same word here to describe the fact that, John, you're going to receive this great revelation in signs, that is, in a symbolic way. These are signs that you need to understand. Now, we saw that for the most part, the revelation will interpret itself either within the text or as we will see in the Old Testament. We studied the prophet Daniel first because that sets up the future schematic. And very important. And if you haven't been with us for the study of Daniel, it's online. You can get it at your phone app, searchthescriptures.org. But most of what is in the revelation is in reference to the Old Testament. Of the 404 verses, 300 are allusions to the Old Testament. And never once does he say Moses said or Hosea said or Isaiah said. It's just assumed that you know your way around. And God did that for a reason. One, this is for his bondservants. And so the average lost person, he's reading someone else's mail and he doesn't have a clue. But many Christians don't have a clue because they don't know their Old Testament. And so they have to go and study and mind out the truths that are here. And we're going to do that by the grace of God. We're going to search it out very, very carefully, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And one of the benefits of doing that is it causes you to reflect and think about what God is really saying. So this is signified. It's full of symbols. And once you understand the symbol, you literally believe it. Just because it's apocalyptic literature doesn't mean that you don't literally interpret it. You interpret figures of speech and signs and symbols as to what they mean. And once you understand the meaning, you literally embrace it. And he writes here to seven churches, not seven epics of church history. Some have done that with the seven churches. And they said, well, each church represents all the first church, the apostolic age, and so forth, all the way up to the Laodicean church. Now, there are characteristics, I suppose, at different times in human history that you will see the church display one way more than another. But these are seven literal churches that are in existence. And here is the map, if you remember. They are in a horseshoe kind of approach, and we will go up to the top of the horseshoe and then down again, ending with Laodicea. Uh, this was the postal route there in Asia Minor or the province of Asia, not the continent of Asia as we know it today, but this was a province within the Roman Empire. But why seven? Because history documents there's about a hundred churches here in this region we call Asia. Some of us know a few others like Coloss, which is really close to number six, or we know Troas that is really close to number three. Um, why these? And why seven? Why not three? Why not ten? Why not the church at Rome or Corinth or, or Jerusalem or Antioch? God has a reason for everything. And one of the reasons is because with each letter in the New Testament, God is thinking not just of that church, but he's thinking of churches down the road, like ours, like Community Bible Church.
The church at Rome that received a letter from Paul, it wasn't just for them, it was for us as well. And so we are to learn it and explore it. And these are seven churches with real people with real problems. And so one of the reasons he writes to these seven is he loves these people and he cares about these people and they need his help. Another reason we discovered was through the common phrase written to each church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the problems they face are problems that any church can face or maybe are experiencing today. Not to the church, but to the churches. In other words, these seven churches were to read each other's mail. They're to read it. Not only were they to read it, we are to read it. Now, it might be that uh, Community Bible Church typifies one of these seven churches more than another. But within any church, there's all seven that are represented. If you have a church of any size, typically you will have some people that will mimic, say, the church at Philadelphia, others the church at Laodicea, others Ephesus, others Smyrna, and so forth. And so it's possible for a church to be like that at Ephesus, where they have left their first love. It's possible for a church to be like that at Philadelphia, where they have tremendous opportunity. And in the end, what matters is not what the church growth experts think or what we even think. Some of these churches are in for kind of a shock. They think they are one way, but they discover that from Jesus' perspective, they are quite another way. And so what matters is not what others think or what we think or what church growth experts think. What matters is what Jesus Christ thinks. But there's another reason, and that is an individual reason. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. It looks to me like everyone here has an ear. In other words, what he is saying is not just for us corporately. We don't want to be vicarious sermon listeners. You know, I'm, I'm listening for so-and-so. I wish so-and-so were here today. Now, we need to listen to this sermon, and I need to hear it, like we're the only persons here today. Now, I told you that there's a common structure which each of the seven letters, each begins with a uh, characteristic that Jesus gives of himself. Um, and I challenged you last week, I don't know how many of you did it, I shared with you that those common characteristics that Jesus gives of himself is found in the first chapter. And to go back and match from the first chapter to chapters 2 and 3 where they come from, and there's one church that doesn't get a commendation from the way Jesus describes himself. And I asked you to find out what church that was. I don't know if you did it. Uh, and, and to think through why. This is going to become very important. But the various aspects of himself is seen in that vision that he's going to apply to six out of seven of these churches. He does so for a reason. Because the description of himself applies specifically to the issues that that church was facing. Then after he describes himself, he gives an evaluation of each church. And with the evaluation, sometimes comes something bad, sometimes something good, or both. With churches five and seven, two of the churches, the one we're examining today, Sardis, or the one we will examine, Sardis and Laodicea, he says nothing good. But with two of the churches, all he says is good. 
with Smyrna and with Philadelphia. And with the other three, he speaks of himself. He says something good about them. He says something bad about them. And then with all seven churches, he gives a, an admonition or a correction if needed. So let's get started with the church at Smyrna. I want you to first notice that the church in Smyrna faced persecution. They face persecution. Notice how verse 8 begins, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you might want to go back and review it because I go into a lot more detail then. But we saw that there are two usages in both the Hebrew and the Greek of the word angel. It can refer malach, the Hebrew angel, to a literal, actual angel or it can refer to a human messenger. And the word in the New Testament, angelos, comes in as angel, can refer to a literal angel, or it can refer to a human messenger. And interestingly, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most of you know it's the Septuagint. And if you have the NASB, in the margin when the Septuagint is being quoted, and most of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament are not from the Greek Bible, but uh, from the Hebrew Bible, but the Greek Bible, and there'll be a little thing in your margin, LXX, that's 70, because supposedly the Septuagint was written by 70 men. In either case... And the Septuagint, Moloch, angel, is with the Greek word angelos that we use in the New Testament. But here's the point. Sometimes when you see the word Moloch, angel, in the Old Testament, it's referring to a little angel, like the one that closed the mouths of the lions. Or it can refer to a human messenger. So some of the prophets are called Molochs or angels, they're messengers. Prophetically speaking, the forerunner of the Lord in the book of Malachi is called the Malach, the angel, the messenger of the Lord. You come into the New Testament, John the Baptist is called the angel of God. He's not a literal angel. His disciples are called angels, angeloi. They're messengers or sorts. So when you come to this chapter, and by the way, in most languages, they don't interpret it at all. We tend to do that in English. The disadvantage to that is we don't always think. Where in other languages, they always use the word angel. And when you see John called an angel of God, you think, well, he's not a literal angel. It must mean something else. And that's positive. But we're not consistent in the English Bible like other languages are. So we have to ask, is this a literal angel that he's writing? Or is he referring to a human angel, a human messenger? And obviously the latter. And I gave you several reasons why last time, but one primary one is that literal angels do not preach and teach the church. Pastors do. Now, there are some Baptist denominations, and I don't want to pinhole Baptists, because there are actually 250 Baptist denominations in the United States. But lay that aside, uh, a lot of Baptists in the United States have what they call a single angel or a single pastor or a single elder form of government, where there's one pastor. And they will use Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to document that position. Though historically in the United States, English Baptists brought in a plurality of elders, but it gravitated to a single elder form of government. Lay that aside, why does he address a single elder with each of the churches? 
Because while in the New Testament, every local church had a plurality of elders, he that is sick among you, he is to call the elders, plural of the church, singular. Not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural of the church, singular. There's a plurality of elders, men who are equal, who carry equal authority, but among that plurality, there is a leader among equals. And typically today, we call that man the senior pastor. So in most churches in America, they may have, you know, five elders or 25 elders, some who are paid, some who uh, are volunteers, so to speak. But typically, you will say, so-and-so is the pastor of that church. We call that man the senior elder because God needs a leader in every local fellowship. And that's whom he is addressing. And the angel, or the senior pastor of the church in Smyrna, now, Smyrna is an important city. It's 35 miles north of Ephesus on that postal route. It has a population in this day of about 100,000 people, and it's one of the oldest inhabited cities at the time. It had been in existence for about 3,000 years. In fact, just a few years before Jesus left heaven and incarnated himself there in Bethlehem, there was an awful earthquake in this city, and that will become important when we compare their reaction with the reaction of another city. It was called in the first century the crown city. It was called the crown of Asia. And if you were on the Aegean Sea and you were looking up at, uh, at Smyrna, up on this hill, it, it formed the shape of a crown, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Now, Ephesus, we discovered last week, was the capital city of the whole province of Asia. It was the Washington, D.C., so to speak. Well, if Ephesus was the Washington, D.C., Smyrna was the New York City. This was a commercial city. It was a very, very wealthy city. The rich of the rich lived in this city. And one of their products, which they were known for, after which this city is named, was for a little shrub-like bush called myrrh. And so it's called Smyrna. You know what myrrh is. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were insightful, godly men, not pagans. They brought gold because they worshiped Jesus as a king. They brought frankincense because they worshiped his sinless deity. God said that you couldn't just use frankincense for your own personal use. And if you did, you were to be cut off or executed. It was only to be used by the Jewish people in the worship of God because it emphasized the holiness of God. And so they brought frankincense to worship his sinless deity, but they also brought myrrh. That's like bringing embalming fluid to a baby shower. But they did that because they understood what the prophet Daniel had said that Messiah would be cut off. These were probably disciples of Daniel down the line. In either case, this is a very religious city. There's a lot of temples there built to men uh, like Zeus or gods like Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite. Cybele was one of the higher gods worshipped on a street called the Golden Street. And they had such a street because they were such a wealthy place. And so pagan life dominated this place, and there were some thriving Jewish synagogues here as well. Smyrna was a thriving city, and it remained that way for 3,000 years until it was burned to the ground by the Turks in 1918. At the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, it was a city that considered itself very erudite, with statues and worship facilities erected to a multitude of gods. 
and that's in part the reason the Christian church there would face a great deal of persecution. We'll learn more about that tomorrow when we continue our message entitled, The Rich Little Poor Church. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV5. And when you contact us, why not consider helping us in our mission of reaching those who don't know Christ and in growing those who do in their relationship with Him? Just click the Give button at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or call 877-787-7478 and ask about making a one-time gift or about becoming a foundation partner. Tomorrow we continue our look at the Rich Little Poor Church. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. (music) 